We interview experts and enthusiasts in the natural resources field, and we get them to explain what's going on. I'm Natalie. And I'm Heather. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Troy. I am going to start off by asking you, how did you get into natural resources? Tell us your origin story. Okay. <laughs> um, so when, well, I guess growing up, you know, I was one of those kids that spent a lot of time outside and just enjoyed the outdoors, but I never thought of that as being kind of a career choice that you could do that or study those types of, of things in those environments. But my junior year in college, um, I took a plant biology course. And just really fell in love with plants. It kind of baffled me that these things had been growing all around me. And when I realized all the complexity of reactions and processes going on inside this plant that never moves, it just kind of blew me away that they were doing all of these things. And so I got hooked, you know, kind of right there in plants. And at that time, I wasn't planning on going to grad school. And so, um, yeah, when I when I discovered I really enjoyed plants and wanted to do more with them, I had to work really hard to get my grades up so I could actually go to grad school. Um, but at that point, I kind of like knew that's what I wanted to study in general. And then kind of the natural resource part of that just kind of gradually grew out of where I went to school, you know, got more into hiking and backpacking and doing outdoorsy things and just wanted to to be more involved in those kind of environments and those systems and conserve them and manage them in a way that that hopefully is sustainable. So very cool. Awesome. So do you have, I'm just curious if you have like a specific memory of like something that you kind of, that happened to you and then you went, Oh, this is going to be what I want to do. Um, I don't think so. I think for me, it was more of a gradual, not an aha moment, but more of a gradual realization that I really love this. I love research. I love being in an academic setting. Um, I loved being a student and I love interacting with students. And so it just kind of like gradually made sense that, Hey, I think this is my place. This is where I, I feel most comfortable and want to be. Very cool. Awesome. And so that kind of leads into our next question about how you came to CSU and kind of what drew you in yeah. to the campus and how that happened. Um, so, well, to be honest, you know, there's not a lot of professor positions in any field or my field. So when, a, you know, a job comes up, pretty much everybody's applying for it. <laughs> but um, I had a friend that had lived in Fort Collins for a long time. So we had visited here, you know, well before I had even applied for the position. And so we knew it was a place we kind of generally liked. I like more kind of arid environments like like here. It's fairly dry and, and hot in the summer. And I like that kind of climate. So all of those things were, were things um, my wife and family and I were comfortable with before I even applied. So when I did apply to this position, um, it was like, there was no hesitation when we got the offer. It was like, yes, of course we would come here. So it wasn't that I, I saw it out, but we felt very, very lucky that this job came available and I was offered that position at that time. Awesome. Very cool. Um, and so, and then can you tell us about your involvement with CSU and what you do here and yeah. explain that to everybody? Okay. So yeah, I'm assistant professor right now in the department of forest and rangeland stewardship. So that's part of one of the departments in Warner college of natural resources. And so, um, my kind of job description is roughly, um, half of my time is supposed to be spent researching and understanding, you know, plants a little better so we can manage them better. 
Um, roughly half is, is my teaching responsibility. So I teach undergraduate courses and graduate course. And then, um, there's some extra time that, you know, I'm, I'm need to allocate towards committees to help the university and the department run and maybe advising student clubs and those types of things. Um, so that's kind of my general job description and kind of how I'm engaged here, um, at CSU. Gotcha. Do you have a favorite part about what you do here? Um, no, I'm going to be a really bad like interviewee <laughs> in that regard cuz um part of what I like about being a professor is that it no two days are the same. Every day is different, every hour is different, and although that can be challenging and switching your brain from one thing to another, that's what makes it exciting. So, you know, one hour we're talking about research and understanding the cells of plants, and the next minute I can be off in a meeting talking about like academic standards or voting for committee members, you know, to college committees and all that, you know, like just you go all over the place. And so it's never boring. And I think that's what I like about it is that it's constantly exciting and challenging and you're always moving, moving around mentally and physically. So cool. And so do you think, is that the most challenging part about your job or is there other things, other challenges that you've come upon that you didn't expect or how does that work for you? That is definitely one of the biggest challenges, um, is just like, yeah, making your brain switch to all of those different things. But I think some of the other things that certainly in science during like your, your education as becoming a professor and a scientist, you learn a lot about science and how to do science and and how to analyze the data and all that. But you don't learn a whole lot about how do you advise graduate students or how do you help undergraduates like find their place in life and how do they become like managers and like, how do you do all of that? Um, we don't learn that. And so that's been challenging is, is kind of figuring that out, learning from other faculty members that have done it for a long time. Um, and so, so yeah, that's been hugely challenging. And then, you know, now you kind of have to manage budgets for different projects and things. And so being an accountant was never on my wish list of things to do. And so like, I'm learning that. So, so those types of challenges, um, are definitely, um, things that consume some of my time and brain power. I've heard that from a lot of people from different jobs that you end up being an accountant when you don't want to be. So (laughs) that's funny. Um, and so tying it into the Warner college specifically, what do you love about Warner and what's been your favorite part about being part of that community? Okay. Um, I I think kind of, you said the word that I think of is, is community. I do feel like we have a really nice community in the college. Um, I hear that from students at both undergraduate and graduate level. I hope you guys feel that way. Um, uh, so but I guess being a little more specific about what that community means to me and, and why I like it. One thing is I, I love the students that come to Warner College. I feel like the vast majority of students I interact with and have in class, they just they really want to learn and like be able to utilize the information they learn in college to help make the world, you know, a little bit better place. And so like the fact that there's that pure um, desire to, to learn for that reason, uh, just makes it, they're easy to teach. Like I always have fun in the classroom or almost always have fun in the classroom. Like it's just a good environment to be part of. And so I really like that. And I think that transcends just not just like the students, but the faculty members and the interactions we have together are also like just really nice. Everybody's just down to earth person that enjoys, they enjoy what they do. They enjoy life. And I think we just have a great balance of of those things here in this this college. 
Very cool. Awesome. Yeah. Community. I'm definitely all across the board. Yeah. Big aspect of this college. So that's always, always good to hear. Um, and so as far as natural resources issues go and the work that you do, are there specific issues in natural resources that you think we should be talking about the most right now? Or what do you think is most important to have at the forefront of our discussions about natural resources? Yeah. So I think that is, um, on, on your list of questions, like <laughs> that is the most challenging one, partly because there's a lot that we could talk about, but I was trying to think about what are some of the unifying like issues we should like be thinking about. And so in, in an attempt to try to like boil that down to a word or a concept. I, I like the word sustainability because to me, it implies um, one that we're conserving things. We're, we're trying to, to manage things in a way that they're healthy. They're going to be around for a long time, but we're still utilizing those natural resources. And the, the other word I like that kind of goes along with that is ecosystem services. I think that's not quite as buzzy of a word as it used to be, but I really like that idea that thinking about the ecosystems that they're not just there for us to utilize. They are providing services to us to support the human population. And so whatever we can do to figure out a better way to make those ecosystems sustainable, I think that's what we have to talk about. And that's a really wishy-washy, not very specific <laughs> um, answer. Um, so I'll give you a little bit more what I think about um, in, when I'm doing my research and, and walking around an ecosystem, I guess. And, and um, I tend to fall on the like my one of my biases is a little more towards conservation. There's all of these different species out there and we still don't know what all of them do in the ecosystem. We don't know the services they all provide. And so for me, understanding as many of those species as we can um, is a really vital component to what we do. Historically, we've studied the dominant species. So if you think about forests around here, we've got lots of ponderosa pine. So we've studied that a lot. But what about all the other species in the ecosystem? They serve a role too. What is that role? And I think we should know that before we make too many drastic changes in how we manage those systems what those systems look like. So I think understanding those different species and their roles is another important component that, that we should focus on. Yeah. So you just mentioned like making drastic changes as an issue. And so do you find an issue with people wanting to take action before they kind of know the research? Has that been yeah, an issue you've run I, into? I a hard time like that with that. Cause I think we, as a society, we tend to do that a lot. And part of the, I get the pressure to make changes, right? Cause we see there's a problem. We want to do something about it. And people like, you know, policymakers or, or government people have to make certain decisions, even though the science isn't there and the science takes a long time. I think that's one thing that, um, I've become a little more, uh, maybe not quite passionate about, but wanting to communicate to people that are not involved in sciences. If, if we want the right answer, it takes time. It's hard to set up a study. It takes a long time to make the measurements. You have to observe it for a while before you get the right answer. And so we like moving really fast is really hard in science. And so we got to find some balance between maybe slowing our decision-making down, but how can we maximize the efficiency of science and research at the same time? So it's a, it's a, Tough challenge. I don't have the answer, but yeah. And it seems like now people want quick answers and quick solutions or else we lose interest. So yes. that's, that's hard. That is very hard. Yeah. Yeah. So if you guys have solutions and how to like, do that problem. <laughs> we'll, we'll think on it. We'll let you know. 
Um, and so what is your personal favorite area of study in natural resources and why do you so, like doing that? Um, like if, if I have a label as a scientist, it would be an ecophysiologist, which is really just taking, um, understand the physiology of a plant and how that physiology changes as the plant's environment changes. So that can be anywhere from how does the physiology of a plant change during the day as it goes from night to, to daytime, or how does it change over the course of the season as soil moisture declines or as temperatures increase. And, um, so, so ultimately that's what I'm most interested in is, is how are plants responding to these changes in their environment? But, but what I've kind of become most interested in, um, is a little bit morbid, but like, what does it take to kill plants? Like plants are amazingly resistant, um, to a lot of these stressors. So for example, during the dust bowl, like the worst droughts we've seen in North America for, for a really, really long time. And some of the grasses that grow in the central great plains, they didn't die. They didn't re grow from seed after the drought ended, they regrew from tissues that were in the ground before that drought occurred. So like, how do plants do that through that extreme drought? So that's what I'm most interested in trying to pushing plants to their extreme and figuring out what does it take to cross that threshold between a live plant and dead plant. And you're part of the plant ecophysiology lab, right? Yes. What kind of projects are you doing there? So what we're um, most uh, focused on right now is what does it take to kill a plant during drought? And what does it take to uh, kill a plant during fire? And then kind of combining those two things. So we're, we're doing some experiments now where we, we've taken these cores out of the ground. So we've dug, it's about a 12 inch diameter block of the soil that we've removed um, from the, from the soil and then taking it to another lab up in rapid city. And then we manipulate how much fuel or dry grass is on top of that core. And then we burn it. And so our goal is to get different temperatures that um, living plants are exposed to and see like, do they regrow after this fire or do they not regrow? And then by having fires of different intensity, we can kind of pinpoint when they can survive and when they can't survive. And so that's one that's kind of fun because you get to burn stuff, which is never <laughs> a bad thing. Um, and so we're having fun with that. And then the other ones are really focused. They're, they're similar, but focused on drought. Um, we have some um, sites throughout the front range where we have rain out shelters. So we build like these almost little greenhouses over a little piece of, of the prairies or the shrublands that capture the rain before it gets into the soil and diverts it off somewhere else. So then we have these little areas of the prairie or the, the shrublands that aren't getting any water. And so it's like they're being droughted and we're seeing how they respond to those. And then we'll look at how they recover after we give them different lengths of drought. So some of them will be one year drought, two year drought, three year drought, and then see like, can these plants come back or do different plants come back or do more invasive species like come back after a drought? Those types Types of issues and questions are kind of what we're looking at. So, well, and so are there any other research projects you're currently involved in that you'd want to tell people about? Um, let's see, what are some other ones that we're most excited about? I think um, one of the other ones that I'm really interested in is um, so I'm I'm really interested in in different species, how different species respond or how plants in vastly different climates, how they why they're different and how they behave. And so we've been doing some more work with understanding within an individual species, but looking at different populations of that species. So, for example, one of the ones we've looked at recently is Boudoulou gracilis, which is blue grandma. It's the dominant grass species in the short grass steppe. So it occurs down in Mexico all the way up into Canada, this one species, like 
like really cold places, really hot places, dry places, somewhat moist places, not really moist, but like it's, it dominates all of these areas. And like, how does one plant do that? Um, and so we've been trying to like understand how one species can do that. And does that mean that species has, um, or each population of those species? So for example, what I mean is like, if you look at the plants growing in say North Dakota, of that one species and you compare them to plants of that species growing in New Mexico, do they behave exactly the same or are there differences within that species in how they respond to drought or, or cold temperatures or hot temperatures? And so that's something else that, that we're looking at. And why I think that's important is as we're thinking about seed sources for restoration, one of the ideas is, okay, well, we're restoring this particular area and the climate that these plants are going to be exposed to might be different than the previous population was there. So should we take seeds from a warmer and drier place and sow them in this place during our restoration project? Like, is that going to benefit and um, maximize our chance of success in this restoration project? And so as we understand the different physiologies or how these plants function in different climates, we can make better uh, predictions, I guess, about how plants from a dry place might behave like if we move them. And and the the take-home message is it's and nobody will be surprised that it's way more complicated than we think. You can't just go to a dry, hot, drier, hotter place, plant those seeds and expect them to do well because they have they have different growth strategies. And so we have to like encompass um, or understand a little bit more than just like, is it hotter and drier there? So I don't know if that makes sense. But. That might end up being the tagline for our podcast. It's much more complicated than you might think. <laughs> or it depends. Yes. <laughs> Um, and so you already kind of touched on this, but if you were just kind of to sum it up for someone who's never heard of what you do and that kind of research, what makes the work you do important and what makes it interesting to you? Okay. Um, the reason for me that it, that it's important is, um, and I've, I've tried to come up with a good analogy for what I'm going to say, and I haven't come up with a good one. I need to work harder on this, but, um, I think we can probably all think of examples where you, you see a problem and you fix the problem with, with whatever solution came to mind. Um, and that worked in that particular situation. But if you take a completely different situation, so for example, I don't know, I'm going to come up with an on the fly analogy. That's going to be horrible, but let's say (laughs) you've got like a, GE refrigerator and it breaks and you figure out, Oh, I need this particular part to get this refrigerator to work again. Great. And then like five years later, you have a kitchen aid refrigerator that breaks and you're like, Oh, well that part worked on the GE. I'll try that part on the kitchen aid and it might not work. And it's probably because you didn't really understand the mechanisms of the refrigerator. So if we understand the mechanisms of the refrigerator, we can take what we learn in one situation and apply it to another situation. So as thinking about managing ecosystems, if we just do a study on one plant in one system, we say, Oh, drought does this to the plant. Well, that doesn't mean drought does the same thing to a different plant. And so we need to understand how the different plants and different communities are responding to these changes in the environment, whether it be, you know, warmer temperatures or drought or more CO2 in the environment, whatever it is, we need to understand those so we can actually make good decisions about how to manage them or quote unquote, like the analogy, how to fix them. Um, if you will, I don't like that term, but, um, for ecosystems, but anyway, (laughs) hopefully you get one. Yeah. Well, and if you could do any research project, what would you want it to be on? Yeah. So that, that was a good question. And, um, what immediately came to mind is an idea that I know several people have had 
because we like we'll have conversations and you're like, yes, that's a great idea. And it is just having a traveling lab. Um, and so the ideas have spanned from like getting an RV trailer and decking it out to a recent one that uh, a colleague up at Wyoming had is he wants to get a, UV, a VW van, like old hippie van, deck it out as a research lab and travel around. And that's mainly because, as I, I mentioned before, I'm really interested in how plants in really different climates behave. And so if we had a traveling lab, we could spend a summer or a month like moving along these gradients from like southern places to more northerly places or eastern places to more westerly places to try to understand how plants across those gradients are behaving. And it would just be cool. So that's my dream. Yeah, that would be very fun. <laughs> um, yeah, well, going back to kind of the drought tolerance stuff we were talking about earlier, can you explain briefly what that is and how plants become drought tolerant? Sure. So, um, I'll, I'll throw some additional lingo in here. Um, so when we think of, so I think in general, when we think of plants that survive in dry places or can, can survive in a drought in the area of like the prone to drought, we think of drought tolerance, but from a physiological perspective or thinking about plant function, we kind of divide that up. So we really call that drought resistance. If a plant occurs in a, like if you go to the desert, plants that occur there, we would call them drought resistant, but they're not necessarily drought tolerant. So I'll try to explain the difference. Um, drought tolerance is a plant that can still function. So it can still grow and survive, even though the leaves may become slightly dehydrated. So it's losing some of the water in the leaves, but they can, they don't really care. They can still function and photosynthesize and all that. We contrast that with plants that are called uh, drought avoiders and drought avoiders are plants that can't become dehydrated. They have to stay fully hydrated. And then they do that either by having really deep roots and they can access water deep in the below ground. Or you might think of like cactus. Cactus are really good avoiders because they can conserve their water. Once they get it, they don't lose it very easily. And so that's an, an example of a drought avoider. And then there's also drought escapers. And those are usually plants that just grow for one year and they die. And so those are plants like if it rains, they'll, they'll germinate, grow, and then die before they even experience any kind of limited soil moisture. So most of my work right now focuses on that first part, the drought tolerance, where plants that can still maintain function despite having dehydrated leaves. Um, and so that's kind of where the main bulk of our research is focused. But we also look at the drought avoidance kind of uh, species as well. And we refer to those as different strategies. And so we're trying to figure out what characteristics do plants have to have to be a drought tolerator or a drought avoider. Um, so then you ask how plants become um, like drought tolerant or, or I'll talk about drought avoiders, I guess, as well. Um, and that kind of depends on what time scale you're talking about. So if we think about really long time scales and evolution, you know, plants have um, evolved certain characteristics that make them more drought tolerant. So we have some species that are really drought tolerant, some that are not. And the ones that became drought tolerant, generally, like the easiest way to think about it is if you go out and you just feel the leaves of different plants, the ones that have the stiffer, tougher leaves, they generally are more drought tolerant because what they have is their cell walls are tend to be thicker and more robust and they just hold up better if they lose water. Whereas the kind of wimpy flimsy leaves, they have really thin cell walls and they, that those cells just can't tolerate being dehydrated. And so that's kind of like thinking over really long time periods. Plants can also adjust their ability to tolerate drought over the course of like growing season. And usually that's because they'll, um, 
accumulate sugars in the cell. So if you add a bunch of sugar to water, you know, water from a place with less sugars is going to diffuse to the place with the more sugars, with the greater amount of sugars. And so if plants can put a bunch of sugars in their cells, the water tends to diffuse into those cells and they can stay hydrated during that drought. And that's a way that it can kind of adjust their ability to tolerate drought over the course of just an individual growing season. So... Does that answer the question? Yeah, no, okay. thank you. That was a great explanation. <laughs> As a non-science person, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, yeah. And so why is understanding drought tolerance in these plants important and what kind of innovations and progress can we make by understanding these? Um, for me, the most important part is um, one, understanding what it takes to be drought tolerant just helps us understand what's going to go on in the ecosystems. Um, but Beyond that, once we know what makes them drought tolerant, our goal is to find some some characteristic or trait we can measure fairly easily. Then we can measure that on all the species in an ecosystem. And we can say like, OK, this ecosystem is made up of some of these really drought tolerant plants and the plants that are not drought tolerant. So when a drought occurs, we know which plants are going to suffer and which ones are going to do well. And why that is important is as we manage those ecosystems, you know, we can't do a lot during a drought, right? Like it's not like we can go and irrigate like Western Colorado to prevent it from droughting, but it helps us more in the recovery. How do we manage these systems to help them recover? If we know a certain population of plants or certain types of uh, species of plants are going to really suffer in a drought, maybe we say like, okay, do we need to plant some extra seed next year or when it rains to help restore that plant population? If that's important for sage grouse or, you know, some other kind of animal or plant function or ecosystem service. So it gives us more information to make management decisions, especially in the recovery after these kind of um, events, drought events. Yeah. Well, that's very useful to recover ecosystems, I'm yes. sure. Yeah. Um, but what are we still learning about drought tolerance? What are we missing? Um, I think the biggest piece, um, I think the biggest piece is really understanding the trade-offs. And what I mean is, um, when we think about uh, plant growth or, or even animal kind of physiology and function um, and life in general, there, we're, we as people are good at some things. And usually that means we're also bad at something else, right? Like I'm really good at coming up with things on the fly. I'm a really bad planner. So that's my trade-off. So plants that are drought tolerant, they might not be very good at other things. And we're still figuring out what those trade-offs are. And I think those are really important to understand because if we make certain management decision that is going to, let's say, benefit a drought tolerant plant, that probably means it's not going to benefit the drought intolerant plants because of some trade-off. And so we need to understand those trade-offs so we know what are what good and bad things are going to come from or I don't know if good and bad is the right words, but like what things are going to happen when we make um, management decisions. And, and so what plants are going to respond positively, which ones are going to respond negatively to those. So, um, yeah. And what's, what surprised you the most during your drought tolerance research? What's been the most interesting? Yeah, I think, um, one of the most recent things that's kind of fresh in my mind, um, that's, that was surprising is that plants growing in the driest places are not the most drought tolerant. And we've kind of known that a little bit, but I had a student recently, um, Julie Bushy, who was a master's student, um, looked at uh, a, this one species that I talked about earlier, Budaloo gracilis, this blue grandma. She took plants from um, North Dakota all the way down to New Mexico. 
And so she's got these different populations. And then she did a drought experiment to see how they responded. And the plants from New Mexico, which we, you know, this is the Chihuahuan desert, a very dry place. They were not very drought tolerant at all. They actually grew really fast when you gave them water. And then just like when you didn't give them water, they were just like, I'm done. Like I can't grow anymore. And so you would think a place like that, where this is the species that dominates down there, or at least parts of those areas, like it actually doesn't handle drought very well. And so like just thinking about what does that mean? Like, what do we need to learn from that and think about um, just kind of like turn some of my ideas of, of plant drought tolerance on its head. And so now I kind of have to reevaluate how I think about that. I'm curious if that includes cacti, because if you were to ask me who doesn't know anything about drought tolerance, what's most drought tolerant? I would say, oh, it's a cactus. Yeah. So are some of those not as drought tolerant as I would think? Um, that is a good question. And, you know, I don't really know. So so all of, I think all of the cactus um, that I know of are would be drought avoiders, not drought tolerators. And so that means like, so what they, they have like almost no roots at all. Um, if you like pull up, like if you go out around here, there's prickly pear everywhere. You go pull one up, like it comes right out of the ground. There's no roots. So they take up all of the moisture when it's like really available, shallow, like right at the surface. And then they can just hang on to that water forever. And so, um, I, I don't know how much variability there is among them in their ability to hang on to their water or tolerate drought. But it's something we've been um, in my lab. We've been thinking more about and talking more about, like, how do we measure these things so we can learn that? So this is a really good question. And I'd, I'd like to know more myself. So, yeah. And going off of that, where do you expect or hope drought tolerance research to go in the next five to 10 years? Yeah. Um, so one of the. The big, so I said, like, I'm interested in, in plant mortality and that's kind of been in the world of kind of forest ecology in particular, that has been a big question is, is what is the mechanisms that, that are killing trees during drought. And so, um, I focus more on grasses and shrubs than I do on trees. And so that the change is kind of the, um, it changes the mechanisms and, and what's going to kill a plant because a lot of shrubs can re-sprout after the above ground tissue dies. Lots of grasses um, and all the ones we study can re-sprout also after like their leaves die. And so most trees, um, there's certainly some trees that can re-sprout, but it's not a common thing that we think of is that, you know, trees die and then it re-sprouts. Um, so cottonwoods are exception. There's a, the aspen. So we know some exceptions, but in general, that's not kind of how they work. But that's how grasses work. That is their main advantage is that they can re-sprout from tissues that are stored below ground. So like I think for grassland ecology in particular, we have to start thinking a little bit more below ground. What's going on below ground with those tissues? Um, grasses produce little buds below ground, and it's those buds that can re-sprout like following a drought or following a fire. But we don't know a whole lot about the physiology of those buds. And so I think thinking about understanding drought in grassland ecosystems in the future, we have to, we have to understand those below ground processes. And so that's some of the work we've just started. Um, I have a colleague at the Forest Service in Rapid City, Jackie Ott, and she's spent like her whole career, like looking at buds. And so like we're learning from her and working with her about like, how do we understand these buds and the physiology and how they tolerate these kind of harsh conditions. So I think that's a really important piece to, to understand. Yeah, no, that's so cool. Really interesting. I've never thought about re-sprouting trees before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Glad to be here. Do you have any final comments you want to add? Um, 
No, I don't. <laughs> you didn't put that on the list. Of- I'm sorry. <laughs> I said we were going to go off it. I didn't oh, say that was all we're going to do. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, other than just like, um, you know, I, I really enjoy your apartment. If, if people are listening that aren't in this department, but are thinking about coming here, I definitely encourage them to, to come check it out and, and get to know some of the people we have. I think obviously I'm biased, but we have really great professors here. We have great <laughs> graduate students, undergraduate students. It's a fun place to be. And so, um, I, yeah, just hope we can grow our community and spread, uh, spread the good news of how to, how to manage our natural resources as best we can. Yeah, I agree. Natural resources is very important because we live in a natural world. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. They are going to be key. <laughs> <laughs> Our key. So. Cool. All right. Thank you again. Yes. All right.